Hi, this is Barty Strange, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Hey, it's Jenny Ellisku. Thanks for checking out episode 82 of the LSQ Podcast with Barty Strange, an artist I've loved since his debut album Live Forever came out a couple of years ago, and who recently released an excellent sophomore studio album called Farm to Table. And this week, he began his first major headlining tour in North America. You can see the dates and get tickets at BartyStrange.com. Great to see you. Yes, great to see you too. Thanks for having me on this podcast. I just listened to the Terrace Martin one just like a couple days ago. I love Terrace Martin, like love his career and what he does and just who he is. And it was really cool to hear that because I had no idea that he started off with Snoop and like the story about him having the CD in his back pocket. I was like, damn, I can relate to that vibe a lot. It's interesting to kind of have that be a sort of a starting point for this conversation. And Barty Strange is our guest in this episode of the LSQ podcast, because I did want to start by talking to you about your previous day job, because, you know, by comparison to say terrorists, just like getting in there and just sticking with music and going through these different levels of it. You started making music, you had bands, and then you went and pursued a profession. Was there this choice? kind of, I don't want to say like give up on music, but just to sort of put it on the back burner during the years when you decided to embark on this career working on political campaigns. Tell me about that chapter of your life. Yeah. So, I mean, just some background. I grew up in Mustang, Oklahoma, small town in Western Oklahoma. And my mom is an opera singer. So I, I was lucky enough to see like excellent musicians a lot growing up. But I saw so many excellent musicians that I didn't think I was excellent. I was kind of overwhelmed by the thought of like going to school for music and joining the Hochschule and singing in Germany and like doing the grind of being a classically trained artist. And I kind of thought that was the only way to do it. I didn't really have an aspiration of being like a pop or indie rock person because I just never saw that. It wasn't in my world at all until I saw like, TV on the radio on Letterman, but that's like a whole other story. I was like 17 by then. So, you know, and so after I left college, I was playing a lot of music and I was playing in bands, emo bands, like post-hardcore bands, you know, doing that whole thing, making beats in my little dorm. But more than anything, I just wanted to get out of Oklahoma. So I took an internship in DC just so I could like be in a place. And I sold all my music equipment to move to DC, all my guitars, my computer, everything got to DC, interned, thugged it out for a few years until things started really working job-wise. So, I mean, I was 23, 24 before I could even think about playing music again. I I was trying to like just eat, you know? And so it was kind of like I put music on the back burner just because I was like, this music isn't going to work out if I'm doing this for Mustang. Nothing's going to work out if I'm here in Mustang. So I, I need to move somewhere where something can happen and I need to make money. And that was kind of the whole grind. And then I was able to afford a guitar when I got my first job. From, you know, 22 to 25, I just kind of played in my my room. I tried to put music behind me and tried to become Mahershala Ali from House of Cards and like be like a lobbyist, super smart black dude on the hill. Like that was kind of my aspiration until it happened. And I hated myself because I wasn't doing what I always wanted to do. It, It really kind of ate me alive. Just being at the desk every day and trying to connect with people through music and not really finding my stride. And that's kind of when I decided to move to New York and join bands 
and kind of push music a little harder. But even then, I never thought like, oh, this is going to work out. I was just like, I need to create something. I can't just not be making things. It doesn't work that way for me. So that's kind of where it all started. What do you think it was that shifted everything, basically, to this place that we are now where, I mean, I've loved seeing, especially this year, with the new album Farm to Table coming out. And, you know, you've been on tour constantly and just building your audience. And it's been amazing to see you get this recognition and acknowledgement that you deserve. But like, what do you think was the thing that changed the energy around you moving forward with doing what you really wanted to be doing? And to get to this place we are now where it's just like, I mean, I would just imagine you look back at the person who felt like maybe they had to let go of some of it and be like, thank God I didn't let go of it for real. Well, it's funny. We were talking about Terrace Martin and um, something he said that resonated with me is like, you can't not do it. Like, it's like you hit a point, like I tried not to do it. I really tried. I tried to be someone I saw on TV, you know, I tried to be something else. And I'll never forget, I was working at the FCC. It was my dream job. The first person I ever voted for was Barack Obama, right? And um, I got a job at the FCC as a press secretary for him, doing like technology policy stuff. I should have been like the happiest person in the world. because I was like 23 and I'd like achieved my lifelong dream of working for this guy that I found extremely inspiring. And I remember getting there and just being so unfulfilled and unhappy and not no knock on the team or anything they were up to. It was just, it wasn't me, you know? And I remember going home and just making beats all night, making beats, playing guitar, looping samples, playing records, cutting samples. I was just making records for myself. And that was what made me feel alive. And I was just like, you know, I don't think the money's worth it. I hit a point where I was like, the money doesn't really mean anything. I feel so horrible about myself not doing this thing that is so natural to me. Like, it feels like I'm denying a part of myself from existing. And so my partner and I, we moved to New York. And I still worked in the movement. You know, I got jobs working in the labor movement. I worked in the environmental justice movement for many years. But the whole time I was playing gigs. I was in country bands, jazz bands, hardcore bands all over New York, Philly, D.C., gigging every night, every weekend, going, doing short-run tours, always, you know, like any music I could get my hands on, I just wanted to be a part of something. I didn't have aspirations to be like a full-time musician. I was like, I just have to make music like I have to. And once that corner turned, I started to see like, oh, like I might be good at this. I'm going to go deeper. And it was like every year I just go a little deeper. I was very incremental with it. I have a lot of friends who are like, oh, how'd you quit your job and like just do music? And I was like, you know, I went from five days a week to four days a week to three days a week to two days a week to consulting. And then I was full time music. You know, it was I'm 33 now and this was like a 10 year process. So that's just how I did it. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to some of what you were kind of summarizing earlier to the kid, the little you baby parties. Music is everywhere. Tell me about what you remember first connecting with and this great feeling that you associate with music. What were the early things that kind of tickled that? Well, so I remember there are two places that music just grabbed me early. One was like opera halls. It's something magical being a child in an opera hall, hearing sound without microphones, bouncing off of the wood, bouncing off of the space, 
And then looking up on stage and seeing like a five foot two black woman who's your mom, just fill it. And it's like, I know not everybody's moms do this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even as a five year old, as a four year old, I was like, I feel like my mom's different. You know, my mom's doing some other stuff <laughs> out here. And I, I really admired my mother for what she was doing on stage. And it amazed me to watch the sound come out. And um, my mom was also a fantastic gospel singer. And when we moved to the States, you know, we would joke around and say we were church hoppers because every Sunday my mom might sing in two or three churches and we'd just roll around with her, watch her sing everywhere. And eventually we got old enough to sing in church too. And so Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, a couple services a day, I was up there with my mom and singing in like the youth groups and the youth services. And I think that's kind of when I started to realize what music could do to people. I was like, oh, it's like, you have like a killing band and everyone comes in here and just kind of commits to this feeling that the spirit's going to move through the room, like a vibe is going to come. And it's not about you as the performer or the musician. It's about creating a space where the spirit can move. And that's something that, you know, I don't go to church anymore, but that's an energy that I still carry with me to this day. Even when I play shows, it's like, it's not about Bartise. It's about something that I can bring. I can invite a, a spirit into this room that can touch people and make people feel like we're all more similar than different, you know? And so that was kind of like my first thing with music was seeing what it did to people and seeing how, you know, human beings can be channels for this like higher power. That was kind of what hooked me. And then I saw Norma Jean, this hardcore band, play at a church basement in like middle school. It was like the first show I went to really with friends. And I saw the spirit move again. And I was like, oh, this isn't just a Christian thing. This is just a music thing. Like, this is just what happens when music works, regardless of a classical space, hardcore space, or like a gospel space. Like, music can just do this. And I was just like, how do I wield this magical power? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of what it turned into next. I was like, this is so cool. How do you like use this? And so that was the beginning. I'm curious, I mean, this is slicing it rather thin, but I'm intrigued about whether you talk about being in the opera hall and it's your mom and obviously that's powerful, but like, is there a kind of physical sensation that you associate with music working for you, whether you're playing it or whether it's music that you're experiencing? Is that part of it? Do you feel something physically? It's funny, I feel like hyper present like so in my body, more in my body than normal. You know, it's like a movie where they do the zoom lens and you can see the hair stand up on someone's arms or something like that. It's like, that's how it feels to me anyways, when I'm playing it or watching it. And especially when what's happening is like real, you know, it's like a buzz. I'm not surprised to hear that. Just like I was watching some video. I've never seen a Barty's Strange concert yet. Looking forward to, though, these upcoming headlining dates this fall, though, that's going to be when it all happens for me. But I was watching a bunch of videos of you and your band performing. I think it was a KEXP taping in particular. I was noticing that all of the people supporting you in your band have this sense that they're reacting in a physical way to kind of this internal thing you're describing of like, and some of it is what we think of as like base face or, you know what I mean? Or like yes. when you're really feeling it and your face does this thing where you're like, oh shit, now we're doing that. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? It's, like that, it's that moment where you look over, you're like, no. <laughs> I always, I get the stink. Like I start, you know, you breathe so deep. Yo, it's a vibe. I fucking love music, dog. Like it's crazy. Like I've been playing so much music my whole life, been around music my whole life. And like, I can't think of anything else that, 
I could do as much as I've done this that can still make me feel brand new, you know, and it does. And my players, I mean, shit, I've been messing with these people for years. Like I've watched them play in bands for years all over New York and DC, you know, we played in country bands together, jazz bands together, whatever, you know? So now to be at this level where it's like, we're playing and people are coming to the shows, we look at each other. We're like, dog, look at this. <laughs> look at what we're doing with music, you know? Like we're such nerds and we love each other so much. So I'm glad you noticed that like the, how intense the players take it. Cause we all just like, we come in with a head full of steam, you know, we're, we want to like change minds, <laughs> you know? Well, talk to me about the early efforts at songwriting and as this appreciation of music and the feeling and the frequencies and singing and feeling good about that. How did that evolve into wanting to write your own songs and express yourself that way? So I think I'm a little weird on this because I didn't trust myself as a front man. And my goals early on were, you know, honestly, my highest aspiration as a young musician was maybe I'll get picked to be the guitarist in someone else's big band. You know, I was like, I was very comfortable with the supporting role. And in tandem with that, I loved recording. And I'd fallen in love very young with recording. I didn't have like a professional setup or anything, but I had like a little Porta Studio four track. And I had my first toy that I remember getting was a talk boy. Do you remember those from Home Alone? Remember the Macaulay Culkin movie? Oh, yeah. He had a little talk boy recorder. And they made a toy out of it. And I used to record the weather. I used to get on it every morning and do the weather forecast and play it for my brother and sisters at the breakfast table. And I love speeding it up and slowing it down. And I was fascinating by the idea of like, oh, you can like record shit and like, and it'll be there. You know, it's just as a young person, it kind of tripped me out manipulating recordings. And so as I got older, I was always fucking around recording. And I'd hear drums and I'd be like, how do they make the kick sound that way? The snare sound that way? Horn, like arrangements through like the classical stuff, I was pretty in love with just like the choices you can make in an arrangement and in a composition and the differences between a recording and a live performance and how you can make choices and bring different elements in. And that kind of stuff was inherent to me. So I, when it came time to join bands and start giving ideas, I always had a lot of ideas for productions. And I also had a really wide musical taste and Everything kind of, I, I felt like it was natural to me. I loved hip hop. I loved punk rock stuff. I loved hardcore. I loved classical. I loved gospel. I had played in all those bands. My mom played in half of those bands. My dad had all those records. You know, I was like starving. I was always hungry for music and I loved it all. And I loved finding ways to connect it all. And so when I started writing, I had bands that I wrote for, but it wasn't until my mid twenties that I was like, I want my own band. Like I want to be Bartise. I'm not afraid of that anymore. And that I kind of started just doing like folk songs because I was like, I know I have all these big arrangements and things I want to do, but I need to get used to just playing in front of people. So I'm going to make an EP of just songs that I have to perform alone on stage. And that was kind of my first go at it. It was called Bartice and the Strange Fruit. There's like random EPs and shit all over YouTube and little videos of me playing it. Little houses and basements all over Brooklyn and Philly and stuff. And after that, I was, I kind of had the confidence to kind of like bring my full vision of a band to life. And yeah, I was probably 27 around then. And what did you find were early on the sort of the kind of things you gravitated toward writing about? Well, this life that I had lived, you know, I grew up in a very rural area of Oklahoma and dealt with a lot of like racism and questions about who I was and who I was allowed to be. And 
you know, I, I don't think I was fully comfortable in my body until I moved to New York City and I started meeting all these artists. Like, um, are you familiar with the band Lorraine? Taja Cheeks band and Kia and Melanie Charles, these black artists in Brooklyn who I just honestly just like fell in love with and was so inspired by because I always felt so alone and singular my whole life. I was the only black kid. And in my musical space, I was often the only black person. And when I was making records, I was always the only black person in the studio. People didn't really listen to me. They, they didn't think I knew what I was talking about. And I was all struggling with even trusting my gut on knowing if I knew what I was talking about, I'd kind of bought, I'd listened to the gaslighting so much. I don't think I even knew who I was until I saw those artists and I was able to connect with them on a level where I was like, oh, like, I'm like you, like, I'm not weird. Actually, this is what we do, you know, and being around them, it kind of created like the space for me to kind of spread my wings and try some stuff and feel comfortable sharing music with people who understood my experience and where I was coming from. And then once that happened, I, I just kind of was able to just lay it all out. And so the first records and stuff I made was like about growing up in Oklahoma, moving to D.C., hating it, and then moving to New York and finding myself. You know, it's just like the honest shit of my life and me diving into moments, small and large, and kind of stretching them out across the song and trying to ultimately connect with people on a personal level. Like, yo, like, I'm a musician, but like, I worked the job, I painted the fence, I flipped the burger, like. I'm more like you than like the people you may think I'm like. And that's kind of what I try to stress through my music, mainly so I can connect with people and also so people can know that they can kind of do stuff like this too. Like changing your life and trying different things and having chapters is a very beautiful thing about life. And uh, I write about that a lot. And by the time you get to your debut album, Live Forever, some of this vision is crystallized and you know what you want to say. So talk to me about how that use of this project has evolved for you, kind of, and also a little bit of as you went into Farm to Table, having made kind of a statement of purpose with Live Forever, you know, where you see yourself, the kinds of things you see yourself wanting to say and hone in on now. It's funny because, like, Live Forever, <laughs> you know, I make these records with my friends, you know, like, it's just me and my buddies. So, you know, we track that in a barn in, like, 15 days, 10 days, something like that. And... I mean, I pre-proed it and I had all the music and I knew what I wanted to do with it. But that whole record was kind of like, look at me. Like, I do not want to be ignored anymore as an artist. Like, I feel like I have something to offer. And I feel like y'all keep picking the same white kids all the time. And like, I'm, I deserve a spot, you know? And that was like my statement for forever. And for me, it was a really big deal for me to make because I was so nervous to do something that felt so me. And I remember listening to that record the first time it was done and it made me so nervous I was like, I don't think anyone's going to get it. And I don't think they're going to be receptive to seeing like a black dude from like bumfuck nowhere, Oklahoma, string together all these like indie rock anthems and the hip hop stuff and the noise stuff and make something new. I don't know if people will even want that or care about what I have to say at all. And then when I saw that they did, it was such a huge boat of confidence. Like it, it made me just want to like double down on myself, you know, trust myself even more. And I'm so grateful for that experience. And I don't think without it, what I've been able to make Farm to Table, which is an album that's so much more personal and about like my family. And I kind of talk about my journey as like a person broadly through Live Forever, but Farm to Table drills in and it's like all that flashy shit, all that ha-ha, like look at me shit. That's one thing, but like this is like the person under that that's like scared of a lot of things, like afraid of like not being 
lovable or afraid that people, you know, tokenizing me and not really interested in what I'm saying, but are just like accepting me for the moment. And me also being like, but fuck it, like, I'm going to do it anyways, because this is where I'm from. And these are the people I'm from. And what I'm doing is bigger than me. And and I feel like that's what Farm to Table encapsulates for me. And I love that record too. <laughs> it's interesting. And I love it as well, by the way. Let me not let that go unsaid. But also the production, it's like, it's bolder in terms of embracing this, you know, it's, you can't peg it into a genre. It's got all the stuff that is you. And the production choices feel bigger and bolder in that direction where it's like, yeah, if you thought that this might be a pop song, it is a pop song. Like, don't get it confused or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wanted to show, I mean, honestly, I wanted to kind of show people it wasn't a fluke. Like, I could do it again. And that was also why I put it out so fast. Like, Live Forever hadn't even been out for two years. And I recorded this record. Like, the day Live Forever came out, I was in the studio tracking this record, pre-producing it. So I was like, I'm not letting three years pass before I drop another one because I don't want people to think, oh, Bartise, like that was cute. I want them to be like, oh, Bartise, this dude is a pretty serious cat. Like he was going to stick around, you know, and it's the pow and the kapow. You know? Right, exactly. I felt like I got better as a producer. I, you know, in the interim, after um, Live Forever, I produced a bunch of records for my friends and shit. I was just trying stuff out. And so um, with Farm to Table, I was like, okay, if we're going to have a pop moment, let's like go for it. Like, let's go. <laughs> you know, like, I want to show people I can like produce that song, you know, and I wanted to kind of just all the bells and whistles, but shinier and deeper. And yeah, we went for it with that record. And as far as like live performance and your kind of, you know, the development of your comfort level on stage, just talk to me a little bit about some of the some of the performers you've seen over the years who were who inspired you as far as your stage presence and kind of how how you got comfortable up there. Performers who inspired me early. Oh, my God. Cedric from At the Drive-In. Cedric and Omar. That was Led Zeppelin for me was At the Drive-In. Like, I was like, damn, I want to play guitar like Omar Rodriguez Lopez. And I want to sing like Cedric. Like, that's it. They run the stage so beautifully. And I like came up mostly playing in hardcore bands. So like the performance was always like, we're going so fucking hard all the time. You know, like that was it. It was like hardcore in church where in church, it was just like the heaviest fucking gospel choppers ever that are just like, you're always playing at like 10, like a low is an eight, <laughs> you know, and people come to church to show off, you know, and play everything. You know, that was kind of my background, but like, you know, at the drive-in, I, I loved watching them play. Um, I guess other artists like Justin Vernon. He was an artist that kind of made me treasure small moments in a way that I didn't understand. Like, I'll never forget the first time I heard Skinny Love. And I was like, this is the heaviest song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you know, I was like, how does a person do this? And I loved a lot of acoustic singer-songwriters. I love Jose Gonzalez. I love Tallest Man on Earth. I love Bill Withers. Like, I love artists who are famous for, like, making small things big, you know? But when Justin Vernon did it, it kind of, like, I was like, damn, like, the way he's bringing in, like, this electronic production and the way he's executing it live, that shit was blowing my mind. And then I would say, other than that, Tom York and Radiohead, those artists just always, the live performance, how they do it is, is singular to them. I feel like every time I see Radiohead, it's like, a religious experience. That's like the end of the road. Like if you can get there, you're like the best, you know? So when it comes time for like, when I put my shows together and my live shows, I mean, we go pretty hard. 
I mean, we bring all the gear. We have all the synths, all the guitars, all the amps. You know, it's a pretty intense setup, but the players are so good that we use it all in a way that's so musical. And I think it's dope. Did it take some growing in confidence to feel like powerful when you get up there? Or is it just so, I know obviously you did a lot of singing as a kid, but is it just something that feels natural? And I mean, for me, being on stage, I never got nervous. I think I had my nerves when I was younger. Certain shows will make me nervous. For example, like, well, the first time we headlined in D.C., where I I live, I've lived here for years now. I was like nervous around that show because I was like, I hope people really come. I feel so bummed. I repped D.C. so hard. I'd be so bummed if they didn't like support me on this show. And then they all came and we sold out. And I was like, this is the best day ever, you know. But on a normal show, one to one, I'm probably not going to be that nervous. I'm more just like stoked like you're about to run out on the field for a football game, kind of. That's how I feel before I go on shows. I'm like, I'm about to fuck this up. Let's go. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm like looking at everyone in the band. I'm like, let's go. Helmet on. Let's go. You know? So that's how I feel about shows. Yeah. I'm curious how I'm going to feel about these headliners in the fall because I've never done anything like that. So I'm like thinking of ticket sales and stuff. I'm like, oh my God. Please, God, let these people buy tickets, you know? <laughs> because you, I mean, you've obviously headlined shows, but this is the biggest, like, headlining tour, the big headlining tour. Right. And I'm, like, playing places I've always wanted to play. It's like, we're playing at the Bowery. We're playing 930 Club. We're playing, you know, Regent Theater in L.A. I'm like, damn, I've watched, like, umpteen live videos on YouTube of my favorite artists at this exact stage in their career playing those shows. Or, like, I've been at that show and been like, they're going to be so huge, you know? I'm like, damn, I hope these go well. You know, you know how it is. Yeah, yeah. Also, the cool thing is that then you got like, so I'm assuming with this headlining tour, this is also the first time you got to put together, like, because I know you picked some awesome artists to support you along the tour. And is this the first time you got to be like, who do I want? I want all of these people. They're coming out. Yes, it was. It was the first time I was like, oh, cool. I'm going to get to build the show I've always wanted to go to, you know? Tell us about some of the artists you have supporting you on the upcoming tour who may be future LSQ podcast guests. Yes. Okay. So the first one is Pom Pom Squad. Fantastic punk band out of New York. I hesitate to call them a punk band because they are a punk band, but it's like bigger than that. It's like calling Paramore a punk band. It's like, yeah, Paramore is a punk band, but like Paramore is different. Like Halo Williams is different. It's not like that. And I feel like that about Mia Baron and Pom Pom Squad where it's like, Punk ethos, punk sensibilities, but the hooks are so big and the playing is so well done. They've got excellent musicians playing the music. And Mia's a fantastic front person who like dresses her ass off and comes to the show ready to play. She's great. She's a great artist. Another group of guys that are going to be with me is They Hate Change, rap duo from, I think, Tampa Bay, Florida, signed to Jaguar this year or last year. And they put out an album that is incredible. They do like dance, breakbeat kind of stuff, but they rap over it. And it's kind of mind blowing because they have that duo, you know, like the classic hip hop duo, like KMD, you know, where it's like they're filling in each other's lines. They're walking back and forth across the stage. They got the matching outfits on. The DJ's killing it. They're getting the crowd ready. Like they're hitting all the ad libs. You know what I mean? It's like, this is high level, excellent shit. And it's from a place that people don't really think about or care about. Like Tampa Bay, Florida, a couple gay black dudes just murdering. You know what I mean? And I connect with that as a dude from nowhere that no one was really looking out for, you know? So when I saw Jack Jaguar signed them, I was like, shout out to Jack Jaguar for having vision and shout out to They Hate Change for making incredible music and being picked. Like, shout out to y'all. So I brought them on tour. I love them. 
Third person I'm bringing on tour, Spring Silver. They're from Silver Spring. It's here in D.C. It's like a neighborhood in Maryland bordering the city. I think this fool is literally the future of guitar-driven rock music. They are incredible. Black, queer, homie from out here named Kiel. And like the guitar playing is so intricate and beautiful, but the hooks are also like super heavy hitting. And I would compare their sound to like Sonic Youth, Deer Hunter, like just the purest, goodest shit. But it's like a black queer person doing it and like super femme. And you don't see enough of that. And every time they've opened for me that I've seen them play, I've just been like, you are important. Like you're an important artist and people need to see what you're doing, you know? So I write super hard for these bands and I'm excited for people to see this show. You know, it's funny because people are always like, oh, we need more diverse bills. And then they book a bill and it's like, just white guys and white girls. And I'm like, that's not actually diverse yet. It's just white people still, you know, which is cool. Like shout out to white people buying tickets. It's good. But it's like, there's this whole other world, you know, like it's cool. It's like, there's going to be a lot of black people and a very diverse scene, but the music is going to be shit that you know and you recognize. And it's just going to be coming from a slightly different space. And I think that's important for people to hear, especially now. So I'm excited to put that on. And you obviously have this big tour ahead of you. And and actually this episode will come out like much closer to when that tour is beginning. But for 2023, what's generally that you can talk about at this point? What are you looking forward to for next year? And we talked about the one-two punch of albums one and two. Are you already starting to think about LP3? I have a lot of thoughts and demos and I don't really stop writing. I'm always writing. I'm not really a like off-season person. I'm kind of like, Everything's rolling, you know, but I am excited next year to take a step back and do some life stuff. I want to buy a house, build a studio. And I mean, I told you I'm kind of an incremental planning kind of person. I'm like, before the music can go up, I need to build some more infrastructure to support the success that could come. You know, it's like you got to go backwards and forwards at the same time. And so next year, I'm going to focus on that, like building out a new room, maybe moving to a new city kind of rethinking how I'm doing things on the back end. And um, I'm also going to play some shows, obviously, but I'm not going to play 150 of them. So, (laughs) yeah. Ooh, new city. That's an exciting decision to get to make, though. Oh, it's so hard. Like, every time I talk to any musician, it's like, where do you live? How much do you pay for where you live? (laughs) You know, we're all just trying to figure out what is like the cities that have an international airport that's not too far away from our aging parents where we could make records and practice out of. And so, you know, that search has begun. That's where I'm at right now. Thank you so much for connecting to do this. It was awesome to talk to you. Yeah, it was good to meet you face to face and do this. Much gratitude to Barty Strange for his time and for that conversation. And if you're listening to this before December 19th, there are still dates left in the Barty Strange headlining tour. Have a look at bartystrange.com. And thanks again for listening to episode 82 of LSQ. There's a new one in a couple of weeks with the hip-hop and spoken word artist Kay Tempest. Looking forward to sharing that in later November. And if you've got questions or feedback, you can reach me on the various socials at Jenny LSQ. 